Madison, August 24th, 1970. As classes were set to begin for the fall semester, tensions on the campus of UW-Madison were at an all-time high. A war in Vietnam, with seemingly no end in sight, has led to massive demonstrations across the country, with none more prominent than those at Wisconsin. Years of student protests led to violent clashes with law enforcement, national headlines, and accusations of police brutality as Madison became the epicenter of the war at home. But the worst was yet to come, as acts of domestic terrorism were now being utilized as acts of protest. But one act was so horrific, it all but ended the anti-war effort on campus and beyond. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode 11. This one goes to 11 of Badger Bazaar. Wow. I am your co-host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other co-host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, Mickey? Uh, Apparently, I can't um, do two things at one time. I'm doing good. How are you doing? We're doing wonderful. We are uh, on the... It just seems like a couple of episodes ago... It seems so fast that we were just sitting on the eve of Memorial Day going into summer, and here we are, like that, sitting on the eve of Labor Day today, saying goodbye to summer. Yeah, that's depressing. Football starts, though. Like it never was here. That's, you know, that's the... the, uh, Saving grace. That's the saving grace of this time of year. You know, I do... It's one of the good things about living in, in this state, right? Wisconsin... Where we have a lot of fucked up shit. The that too. Oh, that's not where you're going. The seasons. You know, I've lived in other other states, obviously, but the see you get the full effect of all the seasons. I've lived here. in other states, obviously. I I never have, so that might have been jealousy. Sorry. Not necessarily. One of those states was North Dakota. Yeah. So well, I don't know I've if lived, you want to be. I've lived right where I lived the whole time. So, so you, you spend your horizons. You do get the full effect of of the four seasons here, which is. You know, in in my book, a plus because a lot of states you don't get that. But you know, and I do like I love summer. Obviously, I'm sad to see it go. It'll I, be warm for a little while yet. It, right, it was 85 today. So yeah. you know, I do like the transition from summer into fall. And football is here, 
you know, spooky season's coming, right? So yeah. that always makes it a little better. I'm going to Buffalo for Halloween, You're too. going to Buffalo. I mean, how can you not get excited about Buffalo? You're going to a Packer game, though. No sarcasm there. Wow. It, I feel drenched in sarcasm now. No, we're just randomly going to Buffalo for the Halloween game. There's so much you know to see. You know what we want to do on Halloween? Let's go to Buffalo. <laughs> yes, the Packers are playing that weekend in Buffalo. Uh, that's a good road trip. Mm. You know, good test. I think that's a Sunday nighter, Monday nighter. Good team, right? Right. We're paying $400 for tickets, so I guess we're smart. They better win. They right. They better a shitty drive back. And I otherwise we're gonna drink ourselves so we don't remember, and that's even more money. So that's great. But summer has been good. You know, it's been busy. You know, I've been on tour a lot for my book, Finding Dairyland. I'm taking a little break with that now. I want to say thank you to everyone that. That did come out and uh, and see me and talk a little finding Dairyland and it's good to hear you know from north, the northern part of the state, the southwestern part of the state, the Lake Michigan shoreline to hear your bizarre stories too. You know, well, when talking actually, about the podcast, people and, delve into that. When break it, right? When really, yeah, that's cool. Talking about you know, obviously a lot of what we talk about is known at least somewhat, or you can research it. But people have their own stories too, their own bizarre stories, and they do not, break into that. No question these books about it, right? Kidding. And I think I think one thing that would be fun to do at some point would be to have a uh, kind of a listener s- story time. If I don't, if I can think of, if I can call it something like that. Show well, and have, tell, have, right? You know, have a have like a listener story time, story share, where people email in or call in, and, and you know we can play these on air and talk about your bizarre stories that aren't. You know, you can't find these on Google. You know what I mean? You can't research these. Um, you can't watch documentaries about it because everybody has them, and I hear a lot about them throughout the summer. So that's something um, that certainly we can think about doing as time goes on. But so you know, as always, you know, feel free to chime in. We're on social media. Look for us. You can search for us on Twitter. You can search for us on Facebook at Badger Bazaar. You can email us badgerbazaar at outlook.com. Um, we're out there. We're all over there. We so are out there. That is for sure. We are <laughs> anything. We're we're all inclusive. Right. Well, maybe that's better. Right. So we're, They're both are accurate, yeah. though. You know, when you find us on, on every platform, and when I look at the, you know, when we look at the stats, we it's funny because when I listen to a podcast, it's always almost always on Apple, almost always. I think I think you, when you listen to podcasts, it's almost always on Spotify. Every time. Right? Yep. I, I look at the stats, and we, I mean, every platform I can think of, almost, people are listening to this on. And it's just Seriously? weird where, where people get their their podcast from they like kind us. Of, they really it's, like it's kind us. of flowing and I, I don't mean that as a look at how popular we are i mean it's just interesting to me all the people, different forums right they can yeah come to any podcast not just us obviously but whatever you're listening to us whether it be apple or stitcher or uh, amazon or spotify whatever it is feel free to like feel free to uh, to subscribe because uh you know that does help in the long run so summertime obviously time for road trips Mickey and I did a road trip a couple of weeks ago. It was awesome. When we went to Taliesin, Frank Lloyd Wright's home in Spring Green. And if if you're not aware, the first episode that we've done of Badger Bazaar, episode number one, was called Murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin. The pilot. The pilot episode, right? And we talk about in that episode why we chose it as a pilot, too. I mean, there's reasons for it. Well, especially for me. I mean, I, I haven't basically kind of an architecture major and i love Frank Lloyd right so and it's dark and twisted so right up my alley 
But the the amount of people that don't know, obviously they know Taliesin, but didn't know about what happened there. You know, there's a, a brutal mass murder that happened in that house back in 1914. And we were there, it was August 15th, 1914. And I think we were there. That's not when we were there. No. <laughs> we're, we're I feel really old. old. <laughs> not aging that quickly. We, we were there a couple days off of the 107th anniversary it was just a few days past it that. was right it was around there, so it was right around the time yeah but if you haven't listened to or if you don't know what happened uh in taliesin feel free to listen to episode one of badger bazaar and you'll get the whole story of what happened there the tragedy that happened there our uh, tour guide was great too she actually delved into that stuff and we've been told previously by numerous people that they didn't talk about that like we so we started thinking that was their policy they don't discuss it she was open about it we didn't have to bring it up and that's the kind of the reason that we went there, uh, other than wanting to see it after doing all the research that we did on it, you know, just naturally. But be, right, be, and as Mickey said, we had been told, I had been told for many times, years, right. even A before lot. the research, even before we were doing this, right. people that had went to Taliesin, they're not told about that. You know, they're told about a fire, but they're not told the specifics of what went on with it, which is much more than just a fire. And she even talked about, you know, his extramarital affairs and all that stuff. Right. She was very candid and open about who he was, good or bad, which is which is refreshing. So we went down there basically to see it, it almost seemed as as there was a policy. And we I I've have you know, both of us have friends that have gone down since our episode aired. They had the same experience Many where they, it them. was not spoken about. Right. So we wanted to go down there and see what was going on. And is it a policy that they don't talk about it? And, you know, as Mickey said, it certainly is not. Our tour guide, her name was Christine. She's amazing. Our tour guide was fantastic. Her name was Christine with a K. And she, you know, so when when you meet at the visitor center, you get on a bus, you all get on a shuttle, and you head over to the house. And it's not, I mean, it's just across the street. I mean, we're talking a couple of minute ride. We actually drove there to begin with. And she brought it up right away. I mean, she brought it up on that you know, little shuttle ride when she she talked about the fires and she said the first fire was intentionally set and she was going to get more into that later on. So right. she kind of threw a little seed yeah. right away and she got right into it. And then as Mickey said, when we were there on the grounds, we were in the tea garden and she told the whole story about him and Kitty and the affair with Mama. And I mean, she got right into the dirt. And with some humor and everything, yeah, she she had a, she took light of the, a lot of the stuff, but she also was not afraid to say he wasn't a perfect man. And she said numerous times how his life was just fluctuating constantly. There was always turmoil. There was always, you know, just things going on that were most people probably couldn't even handle. And she she made note of that constantly. So she she did not paint any kind of picture either way. She just basically gave the facts, which is amazing. She gave the facts, and I think it was right before we entered the house the first time. Um, I think we were on the like the little courtyard area where she went right into the murder, and she said that uh, they were burned, and then that he used a hatchet to to kind of finish them off. I mean, she got right down into yeah, the she didn't hold anything into back. the nuts and bolts, and 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 it wasn't she, it wasn't gruesome by any means, but she was fantastic. Her knowledge was uh, first rate. So, and it, you know, a lot of times when you go to these these kind of these house museums, these kind of living history museums, they're called. You can tell that the tour guide is rehearsed. 
and that everything is kind of memorized. And maybe they were even given a script. They didn't necessarily right. go. Like you could tell she went out of her way to find out a lot of this information. They, she wasn't given this. She went out of her way. She went above and beyond. It was so, amazing. Fan, fantastic experience at Taliesin. Obviously, it is. It, there is no policy. And, and credit to them. Credit to Taliesin for that. Because it right. certainly seemed from the many people that we had spoken to who hadn't heard the story that there may have been a policy there. There is not. Oh, it's just our speculation. It's it's basically on, uh, you know, the, the tour guide is open to telling what they want to tell and what they know about. And, you know, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of, maybe some of the tour guides aren't aware of it themselves. And because maybe they're younger and they just don't. Sure. But super entertaining. Uh, you know, there's various tours that you can get there. You can get like a highlights tour, which is like an hour long, and you get, you go through pretty quickly. There's a four-hour tour where you go through other buildings on the campus, the school that his, his aunts ran, uh, the house that he built for his sister, Tanny Derry. And, um, uh, but the two-hour tour, which is a pretty... Intense and in-depth. Right, tour of the house, which is what which is what Mickey and I did. You see every corner of the house, and it's it's beautiful. I mean, it's getting to be run down, but it's you see everything, and it's in its heyday, it must have been a beautiful place. And it's it's kind of, it's left like it, like... He left it. Like right. the, his tables are there. His drafting tables are there. There's like, you know, water rings from him setting his drinks down on the tables and stuff. And that's, I mean, it's like he just walked out of that place. Right. And you it, know, it's, they haven't done a whole lot to refurbish it or to even um, repair it. Because as we were told, he, that was an experimental grounds for him. That's He was learning how to, you know, create new materials and all that stuff. That's where he did it. And so the reason she gave us was that they, they didn't know how they could replace it exactly, so they didn't bother. But I think they just wanted to keep it intact so they could say everything was original. Either way, you can see that it is in need of repair in some places. Sure. it's a, it, Being a historic property, they don't just want to willy-nilly start replacing stuff because you're, you, do, you do kind of dent into the historic integrity of the right, house. Right, the integrity. Gets but there will come a time um, where they're going to have to save some right. things because otherwise the house just it's won't be fall standing yeah it's, itself, it's going yeah. to you know they're going to have to bring scientists in and chemists in and figure out what was going on and how they can best repair this stuff but you know as of right now they don't need that and i think it's it's wise for them to leave it in the condition that it is but eventually it'll it'll have to be um, they'll have to go more in depth into repairs and refurbishing but right so now, now is the time to go and see it before they have to start doing that so you can see it while it's still intact all the original originality of it i mean it's it was a great time we had a good time it was it's beautiful and hopefully you get lucky and get our tour guide because it made the experience even better than we expected and and knowing the house i, I mean obviously you know if you know who if you know who frank lloyd wright is obviously and you want to go see his house go see his house you know but yeah, right. but obviously that makes knowing the house knowing about the man knowing about the tragedy that happened there is part of knowing the history of the house it's not, it's not to be gruesome. It's not to be, you know, uh, macabre. It happened there. And that's what I said to the tour guide. I, I, I actually gave her a compliment and said I appreciated her candidness and, and how open she was about all that. It was, it's all part of it. And in this day and age, right. people like the macabre part, and that's why they're listening to us, even if they are. It, it, it's part of the history. It's interesting. It, it makes it more interesting than just an everyday, ordinary life would. His life was full of strife and that that was a huge part of it i mean he 
you went in depression for a long time and that was all the cause. So it's, you can't leave it out in my opinion. It just, it makes knowing what happened there. It just made the experience so much richer for us. Right. You know, I, I was looking around to the people that were in our group when she was telling the story, when she told about the mass murder and, you know, people were like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, well, what like every, yeah, but, you know, they didn't know about it. And, no, never heard you know, it. meanwhile, you know, Mickey and I are trying to figure out, okay, where, where, did, where did this happen? Where was the dining right. room and stuff? And, and how and, much is she going to tell us? And right. All that stuff. And yeah. that, you know, the house has been built twice over. They're in the, the third inclination of two fires of Taliesin. So even if it was built exactly like it was, which I think the second inclination was built very similar to the first. Sure. But he was the kind of guy where he just kept changing things. He just kept adding on to oh, things. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, Christine made a comment where, you know, Mama, she made a joke kind of where, you know, it's, he, he's the type of guy where Mama would get up one morning and go into the bathroom and be like, oh, that's not a bathroom anymore. Because right. he just changed things that quickly. Well, because he was, again, he was experimenting. He was always trying to test materials and just see what looked good and what didn't. And that's the place where he learned stuff and figured out stuff. And and that's where he realized, well, this is what I'm going to do on my next project. That was the laboratory, essentially. I mean, it's really cool to have been there. So super positive experience. If you're interested in that, um, and if you, if you listen to, to episode one and learn about it, if you get a chance, head down to Spring Green and uh, and go see Talias. And it was quite striking in my opinion christine uh, if you can if you, if you can ask for a, a tour guide right. ask for christine with a k and uh and and she'll take care of you and tell her badger bazaar sent to you yeah so the sterling hall bombing august 24th 1970 this is something that i i've been aware of you know, I, I am aware of being obviously a Wisconsinite. And not being dead. And, and, and actually, you know, it, what we'll be talking about, too, leading up to this bombing on the campus of UW, um, what, I'm, what I was more aware of and what I knew more about was the Dow riots, the, the Dow chemical riots, which we'll be talking about in a bit. But obviously, the Sterling Hall bombing, you know, growing up here, spending time in Madison, I've known about it. Obviously, most of us know about it, but I didn't know the specifics of it. I didn't really know about who did it. And, and what I, I wasn't aware of was how much went on to lead up to sure, that. Sure, yeah. The UW campus was was one of the nucleuses in the country for the protest for that war. And I, I, had, I knew that there were things that went on, but, I mean, I actually dialogued. It went on for a few years, and there was a lot that yeah. happened that were significant. Just by sp- spending time in Madison, I didn't go there, obviously, but knowing people who did going down there after high school to party, spending time there, going to Badger games there, uh, spending Halloween. Remember Halloween in Madison was a, used to be a big deal back in the day? Remember until they mm-hmm. screwed that up because they were, well, they were rioting and they were smashing in storefronts and stuff, and they ended that. It's known as a liberal town. And then, uh, well, you know, but now, I mean, they still do Halloween there, but I think it's like cordoned off and it's like a block party now or something. It's not, back in the day, you know, in the 90s, Halloween you wanted to be in Madison during Halloween, but just spending time on that campus, obviously, you you kind of learn the history a little bit of of what happened with with on that campus during during this time. And you know, you, you to to really understand it though, you got to look at the environment of the UW campus at the time, the environment of the country at the time. You know, we're talking late '60s into 1970, a very obviously volatile time in our nation's history. By this time, the civil rights movement obviously has been the big issue of the day for years. 
you know, with all the civil unrest that we saw in the South and nasty video and photos that we still see of it today and all the stuff that was going on down there. And yeah, and the idea of free love. I mean, that was going on in the 60s, so it was just a total contradiction. Right. You know, so you, you have in 1964, the Civil Rights Act passes. The Civil Rights Movement, I don't know if there's a, an official end to the Civil Rights Movement, but, you know, late 60s, 67-ish, um, you, you kind of have the transition from that major domestic issue of the day into the next major issue of the day, which of course was Vietnam. And, you know, people, people today, Vietnam's an interesting thing to me because we were, you know, we were kind of born right at the end of Vietnam, right? Seven, mid seventies. When it ended, right? Right at the end. So while we were growing up in the eighties, that was still a very profound thing. It was still a pretty fresh wound to people around my dad. You know, people our, were still our, debating our, it. our parents, are right. the ones that fought that war, right? right? I mean, my dad was there. My uncles were there. Well, my parents had nothing to do with it. But, but my point is, is that that was still, I mean, we're growing up in the 80s. Vietnam was a big deal. Still. It was in your mind. You and know, whether, sure. No matter how involved you were, you knew all about it. Right. Well, and, and pop culture, you're inundated with it. Right. You know, we grew up watching Platoon and Full Metal Jacket. Hamburger and the media was, a, was already a big factor you know, back then. So. And, and, you know, and Platoon was huge here because of Willem Dafoe. Remember, it was like one of Willem Dafoe's right. first movies was Platoon. Obviously right. a native of, of Appleton, Appleton East alum. Yep. So I'm not sure people today really understand it. I didn't understand it growing up. I understand it a little better now. You know, as you grow older, you kind of learn more of this stuff. You know, certainly at the time, you wonder what, what, what did these people understand while their sons and brothers... And friends are going off to this country that maybe none of them had heard about three years prior, you know, to fight this war, to fight for a country, you know, that, that we didn't really know much about. And even the troops weren't necessarily happy to go there. And it wasn't necessarily a negative thing, but people didn't know about it, so they were afraid. And You know, they split Vietnam in two in the 1950s, and the North part became communist because they were loyal to, you know, the Soviets and the, and the Chinese. The South was much more of a Western-type free society because they're, they're loyal and backed to by the United States and Great Britain and in Australia. So the North wanted to unify the country as a communist nation. And obviously, you got to look at the time here. We're in the 50s and 60s, where after World War II, the entire Eastern Bloc of Europe is communist. And we're worried that if Vietnam goes communist, we're going to lose all of Asia to communism. And now you have basically half the globe spreading communist. And why would it stop there? Right. You know, so we made a, a, a foreign policy decision at the time, that we weren't going to let that happen, and we're going to try to not let that happen, and we're not going to debate that. Here. <laughs> we're not going to debate that here, no. you know. But that's that's why we were there. We were yeah. trying to stop. This is, and you know, this is government speak. Obviously, you know, we're, from the government's perspective, we're trying to stop the spread of communism. And I don't know if that's a good enough reason, especially when when you're 19 years old at the time. But they're the ones you know. making the decisions. So in 1965, President Johnson at the time escalates the war. We had been acting as a quote-unquote consult to South Vietnam since the 1950s. And, you know, when, the, when, when America is, is acting as a consult to somebody, that pretty much means that we are giving them weapons, we're giving them ammunition, and we're training them to fight. Johnson sold this. You know, he, he enters in hundreds of thousands of ground troops 
1965, he dramatically escalates the air war, even though we'd been showering Vietnam for years with, you know, herbicides and pesticides like Agent Orange, you know, to try to get rid of the jungle. Which affected people decades still, later. Still now. Still now, right. You know, so obviously they were prepping for this. At the, at the time, President Johnson was able to sell sending hundreds of thousands of ground troops into Vietnam, saying that they're going to look at us as liberators, it's a noble cause, yada, yada. The same stuff we kind of hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, this had kind of overwhelming approval by not only Congress, the House overwhelmingly approved it, and I think there were only two senators that dissented on it about it. I don't think it out was. Of a, out of 100. Congress wasn't quite as divided as it is these days. You know, ca- casualties were at a minimum at this point. By 1965, we had lost a couple of hundred military personnel since the 1950s. Obviously, any casualty matters. But when you're looking at a couple hundred dead in 10 years, the, the, the public's not working against that yet. We didn't have ground troops in there yet. These were basically special forces people. So by six, 65, Johnson greatly escalates the war in Vietnam, which actually wasn't even a war, according to Congress, right? It was never declared a war. Right. It's a conflict. Well, they're going to downplay it as much we as We know can. it today as the Vietnam War. It was never declared a war by Congress. 58,000 dead, right? right? Americans dead. Completely. Yeah, never, never declared a war. So he, he, he greatly escalates this in 1965 by 1966 well you know this at that point sporadic protests began sure but in you know 1966 things aren't going real well no you know casualties are mounting there doesn't seem to be any plan to get out and it seems to be a bit of a quagmire that we're into now like you said once they got sent over people started noticing. And April 1st of 1965, sociology department head William Sewell organized a well-attended anti-war teach-in, as they called it, on the campus. And we speculation would lead you to believe that it was after hours, you know, not during class or anything. An attempt at this was already done at Michigan, but it wasn't as successful. And basically Sewell was reflecting his belief that the U.S. doesn't have, as he quoted, any business over there. So, so a teach-in What's a teach-in exactly? Because Congress was overwhelmingly approving this war, and because the American people were overwhelmingly approving this war, based on what Johnson, you know, the White House is telling us at the time. The people in charge are saying they're going all out for it. Teachers in campuses across the country, like Mickey said, started in Michigan, came here to Madison, along with others. Teachers... Berkeley was a big one too, right? Right. were, Were doing what they were calling teach-ins where they were they weren't allowed to do this during class but they would use their classrooms and they would they would schedule these you know at like eight o'clock at night and leave it open for any any student that wanted to come and the teachers would then kind of explain to the students in their perspective because they felt that they're hearing a bunch of uh, one-sided information Biased from the White House. Propaganda. Right. From from the everybody seemed to be in lockstep from the White House to the American public to the press and a lot of people, including teachers and in universities across the country, had a different perspective. So they wanted to throw this other perspective out to the students. So as a professor, you're, you're trying to enlighten your students and see, make them see both sides. Because like you say, media has been telling them the government's point of view. And these teachers who probably had their own point of view or agenda were trying to just, as they would probably tell themselves, teach the students that there is a whole other perspective. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think... Right, you're right. Called a teach-in today. Right. I think the word teach-in is a little um, 
not accurate. It was probably more the teachers going, I don't agree with this, but they saw it as, oh, let's let's tell them there's another point of view. Sure, old. sure. We want to enlighten them. Sure. So what this does is, you, you, you know, you, you start having a growing anti-war movement on campuses throughout the country, not just because of these teach-ins. No, but students you know. at that age, A, they know that they're brothers and sisters that are going over there, and people, the troops, like you said, weren't that happy to begin with, but these are people that are influential at that point, right. you know, and and they're they're passionate. You remember what it's like to be younger? You, you just, you had all this hope. You also had all this fight in you, and later that month, later in April of 1965, 15,000 students, that's a big number back then especially, demonstrated against the war in Washington, D.C., in October later that year, 25,000 war supporters converged under D.C. And a month later after that, 35,000 anti-war protesters once again emerged on D.C. So it's becoming, it's getting ahead. It's, it's gaining ground. This protest thing, it's getting bigger and bigger, and the country is becoming more divided all the time. Right. And, you know, casualties were mounting now. They're noticing, you know, like Mickey said, their, their brothers are being called over there. Their friends are being called over there. Sometimes they're not coming back. They're noticing injustices in drafting in the people that went over there and the people that fought over there. And, and this is, you know, African-Americans at the time made up 11% of the population in America. So you think, you know, half of that male, right? So what, 6% of the population of America at that time were African-American males. Because there weren't that many females in the military to begin with. Right, there were no combat females in combat. Right, so six percent, roughly, African American males in the United States at the time, but they made up sixteen percent of all those drafted, and twenty three percent of combat troops. Okay, that's not coincident. Four times the amount of combat troops were African American than there were in the nation at that time. This is not coincidence. No, if you were you know, black, you were sent to the trenches. And it, it was so obvious. This isn't 50 years later that we're kind of crunching numbers here and noticing this. This was so obvious that they people knew, it, knew it, the it. They knew it then. Right. They knew it then. They're like, why Why is everybody dying black? Right. You know, why is everybody getting drafted black? And it wasn't just black people noticing it and, and protesting it. Right. So, you, you know, the, the war becomes, the anti-war effort really starts to grow in America. And it's kind of led by what's known as the SDS, which is the Students for a Democratic Society, which became a very large, progressive, kind of pacifist group on college campuses around the nation at that time. By 1967, there were 500,000 American troops in Vietnam. 500,000. 16,000 dead. 16,000 Americans dead. 110,000 wounded. This is two years after, well, there are not too many casualties there, so we're gonna we're okay, President Johnson, let's do this. Now sixteen thousand are dead. And again, there doesn't seem to be any plan to get out of there. So protests started really around college campuses around the country. Anti war protests started popping up big time. In sixty six. In sixty six. Right. With right. The sit-ins yeah. that as they called them back then. So in May of 1966, what was occurring throughout campuses around the country, including UW, is that, the, and this goes on with the draft again, they were administering draft tests. So at that time, if you were in college, if you were a student, you were exempt from the draft, right? You were safe, so to speak. Hmm. Well, they needed more men than that. So that went away. That didn't necessarily matter anymore. So what they were doing is they were, they were administering tests and these tests were being held in May of 1966 at UW in the Fieldhouse. So 
if you if you scored high enough on this test, well, you're good. You're smart, right? Yep. You're you know we need you. You're the future. But if you scored too low, get on the bus, buddy. You're you're heading over there. Yep. So you know students obviously saw what was happening here, and they uh, thought that was kind of BS. Um, so they, they protested and, they, you know, they did a sit-in at the Peterson building. And what they did, they did a five, it was a five-day sit-in, totally peaceful. The protesters gave speeches. They handed out leaflets. They studied. They played cards. It was peaceful as peaceful can get. And in Trying the, to make a point, but not, without violence. There was very little violence to this point. So in, in the end, the UW faculty uh, voted to n- not administer those tests any longer and actually when you took the tests the the results were going to go right to the draft board and they said we're not going to administer the tests and we're not going to give the draft board any results but you can if you want your you know how you're doing in school and you want to give that to the to the to the draft board you go ahead and do that that's your right to do that but we're no longer going to do that so they listened Right, and Paul Soglin actually—he was one of the leaders of the student protesters. He actually wrote an effusive letter of thanks to their university president in appreciation, because they were being heard and they—they they felt like their message was being received. The Milwaukee Journal, at the time, declared, "Quote: The UW, the University of Wisconsin, seems to have shown the nation that a student protest can be a legitimate exercise in democracy, not a disruptive episode of bitterness." So they were kind of putting on a clinic Once again, for the, the first- country to see. Once again, things, when people put their foot down and, and want to fight a fight, it seems to happen here for the important ones. So the students protested peacefully. The university kind of got the message, and it came to a, a conclusion. And actually, they recognized it and gave it validity. Right. And, and the students appreciated that, and everything seemed like it was going hunky-dory. <laughs> and that doesn't last long. No. <laughs> They're still people. Stay tuned here, folks. <laughs> you know, and that's all. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the episode. So also in 1966, Dow Chemical comes on campus for recruiting purposes. So they're, 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 they're doing interviews. They're looking for employees, right? And Dow Chemical, obviously a massive corporation. They create all kinds of things. They make plastics, synthetic plastics. Saran Wrap, I think, was one of, one of their biggest selling you know, consumer products. But they also produced... Napalm. And we all know what napalm was used for. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. In Vietnam. You know, we today we see photos of what was going on with that. They would they you know, they were they were dropping it on villages. In January sixty seven, Ramparts magazine actually published photos of Vietnamese children burned by napalm. Just imagine how that scars your brain when you see that. Children, so, no matter where they're from, they're children. So in October 1966, Dow Chemical obviously comes on campus and they're recruiting future employees and uh, the students protest this. And again, there was police intervention, but most of it remained peaceful. Nothing major happened at this time. But they told the university they didn't want them there anymore. University didn't respond at that time. More interviews happened in February of 1967 of Dow Chemical coming back on campus. This again did not go over well with the students. So they started blockading entrance into Bascom Hall where the interviews were happening. The interviews turned much more angry. They kind of, the chancellor at the time, Chancellor Fleming, they actually 
held him against his will in the office of the dean of students, and they wouldn't let him out. I mean, I guess it's a kind of kidnapping, maybe, but they weren't letting him out. What else do you call it? And they were demanding that Dow leave campus. They eventually did let him out. 17 students were arrested. It still stayed, for the most part, nonviolent. And I think they were probably arrested for, you know, blocking entrances and, and things of that nature. And the ironic part is? The ironic part is, is that Chancellor Fleming posted bail for all 17 of those students. He paid for him to get out of jail. So I guess that's in a, in a, a, a show of good faith. Right. Maybe. And maybe he understood why they were doing it in the first place. He has a job to do. They weren't necessarily understanding that, but he understood these are passionate young students and, you know, they don't necessarily deserve to be in jail for just trying to make a point against these guys that they consider the bad guys, Dow Chemical. Now, he had to, he kind of had, he had to play this down the middle, obviously, because there were other companies coming on campus too, recruiting. Right, and they're getting something out of that. Sure. And those other companies were, were making things for the war too, okay? But they were also hiring their students. Right. So what, what's he going to say? So he kind of he had to play this down the middle. The good thing, I guess, for Fleming is that he booked out of there not long after this. <laughs> I don't know if he retired or if he went on to another school or what. Went to Guatemala. Just, yeah, right. just right. booked. So he t- hightails it out of there. And William Sewell, who we talked about previously, became the new chancellor. And he was told by Fleming, yeah, you know what? These these protests, we got, we got it. You know, he thought him paying, posting bail for these 17 students that uh, there's peace between us now, right? We're, right? we're doing okay. And there was a proposal barring Dow from campus um, recruiting. It was defeated in subsequent faculty meeting. But Sewell actually voted Sewell for Sewell voted affirmative, so that, that's something to remember. Sewell was anti-war. Remember, he was doing these teach-ins. He was the first one to do the teach-ins on He campus. was anti-war, and he voted to bar Dow from coming onto campus, but he was overruled by the Board of Regents. But now he's chancellor. So October 1967... Guess who comes back? Dow Chemical comes back and starts doing more interviews, and this is when things go off the rails. Yeah. So students organized a sit-in at the Commerce Building, which is now Ingram Hall. Remember, they had that sit-in the previous year with the draft tests. you got to look at now what, what are the students seeing, right? They did the sit-in last year, 1966, about the draft test. They got the outcome they wanted. They had the protest earlier in 1967 where 17 students were arrested, but the chancellor paid their bail, right? So the students are kind of seeing maybe a little pattern here. That we're making a difference. They're, they're listening. Sure. They're, the point is being received. And maybe the university is maybe a little weak. Right. You know, they might cave. They can be influenced, if sure. nothing else. And the UW student newspaper, The Cardinal, prints a warning from the dean of students. That any students disrupting campus interviews will be subject to disciplinary disciplinary action. Students led by Paul Soglin then, as a result of all this, filed a federal lawsuit in attempts to protect their right to protest. So Dow comes back, they're doing interviews, and the students organize a sit-in at what is now Ingram Hall, the Commerce Building. A few interviews were actually held, but it became too intense and too, I think the protest probably became too angry that they stopped the uh, the interviews and the rest were canceled. And the new chancellor, Sewell, demanded that they leave, demanded that the protesters leave. They didn't. And they were protesting at the Commerce Building, which is now Ingram Hall, as we mentioned. And they demanded that Dow 
stopped doing their interviews. And then William Sewell, the chancellor, demanded that the protesters leave. They did not. Not only didn't they leave, but they demanded that Sewell sign a document saying that no more interviews by any companies working for the war effort can occur on campus. But Sewell didn't do that either. You know, so the students are looking at this saying, you're, you, we're going to college here, right? This is where we're going to school. You're bringing in a company that is dropping napalm on villages in Vietnam. It's doing horrible things to people. It's doing horrible things to children. That makes you complicit in the war effort. We are demanding that you stop. And the irony is he's the one who started the whole, look, there's another point of view to this, to the government saying right. that this is the right thing. And now he's kind of... So now he's stuck. Right, because they're, they're starting to see him as the enemy. Like, why are you contradicting who you were before? Because he's a chancellor. So he did not sign the document. And not only did he not do that, he did the thing that, according to him in his old age, haunted him for the rest of his life. He called in the police. So the police come in, and they're basically told by the university to get the protesters out. They weren't told how. They weren't given instructions about what to do or what not to do. They're basically told to get them out. So the police enter the building. A team of 30 policemen have been assembled. And who who knows, obviously, what happened next, right? The police say they came in the building and the students surged. The students say the police came in and started billy clubbing people. Right. How are we ever going to find out? After, as I read, after a few hours of fruitless negotiation... What does that mean? Untrained in riot situations, these 30 police that were assembled. Well, they were probably traffic cops. Right. They stormed the, the building and began removal by force. Maybe. I mean... W- well, how else do you put a stop to it if they're not if they're resisting that much? It makes sense. Whatever force means, it doesn't mean they were beating them or anything. True. It means they were probably trying to grab them and pull them out of the building. True. So whatever happened... A huge melee ensues, uh, a melee be- that turns extremely violent. Suppose, you're right, like you said, that we know. We just don't know the details. Police end up firing tear gas into the crowd. You know, the, the, the canisters are hitting students in the head, in the back. People are billy clubbed. Seventy people, 19 of which were police officers, were sent to the hospital. Nobody was killed, but many were seriously injured. There was a police officer who has his septum was displaced. 19 police officers of the people. There was 19 officers that were even sent to the hospital. And a woman whose uterus was ruptured by prolonged abdominal clubbing. I can't even make a smart remark about that. It just gave me the willies. You know, what's going on that that happens? You know, we saw this, obviously, in modern times. We saw this two years ago with with the the Black Lives Matter riots. Who do you blame? Right. I mean... The police are well, doing their happened? job and these students are protecting something that is a legitimate point. Now, there, there, there was one... There are police officers who were saying that some of these students were flashing a Nazi salute and yelling Sieg Heil to the police officers, many of whom were World War II vets. Now, you get into a, an extremely emotional situation like this. Everybody's scared. Right. I mean, they don't know who the has a gun. officers and of the course. students alike. They don't know who's got a gun in there. They, they're throwing bricks. Well, you, you know? just don't know how crazy the people are and how, how passionate they are, if that's the right word. I mean, just tempers are rising. 
But you, I mean, you're, you're a police officer, you're a former World War II vet, you just, you know, gave years of your life fighting over and God knows what, and a student does the Nazi salute to you and, and yells, Sieg Heil, what's going to happen? And there is video and photo evidence of that happening. We do know that the students right. were doing that. Not that that's an excuse for billy clubbing them or whatever they did. Who knows? No, but it's it's a part of your past and of course something you're passionate about. And the person who's provoking you is passionate. And tempers arise. And I mean, it, it's ugliness. But by five thirty p.m., the last students left. And as I read it once again, a first in the Badger State. The first violent anti-war protest on an American college campus comes to an end after all that ugliness. But still, once again, another first for a dramatic situation. The first anti-war demonstration on a major U.S. campus turning violent, right? It's also the first time tear gas was dispersed on campus That's right, ever. Right. Now, that the, turned out to be a lot more times after that. But right. that the, the, the Dow The riot. first always seems to happen in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, th- this is huge news around the country. You know, well, that night, another mass student meeting. They agreed to boycott classes, right. so the students are pissed. So, all over the nation, you see now um, these protests turning more violent, more angry, because well, they were doing it in Madison, right? Now we can do it here. Uh, so these copycat riots start, and it just creates this massive domino effect of unrest. Dow Day is what it became known as. So as I was talking before, you know, the, there's the Sterling Hall bombing, which I knew about. Obviously, you know about. But the Dow, the Dow Day riots, you know, it seems like you know much more about. I saw much more about Dow Day riots growing up um, than the bombing. And there, there's documentaries made about the Dow Day riots. Why is that? Nobody was killed in those, right? But you have another narrative there. You have a police brutality kind of narrative there. Right, you have a authority versus right. subjugate narrative there going on, so that gets the play. It's us against Big Brother, and during all this, an enormous anti-war protest draws more than a hundred thousand people to D.C. So, as you said, it's as Scott said, it's a national thing, including a contingent from UW Madison. In Madison alone, two thousand students marched to the state capitol in what they term funeral procession to protest the police brutality. So. There's a lot going on. There's 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 fire in their veins, and the actions of those 30 untrained police have become point of emphasis. So obviously people that seen what went on there in Madison became more radicalized against people in authoritative positions, people who were anti-war but mostly quiet, you know, now started to protest more. Stop being quiet. People who were kind of indifferent became activists. So civil disobedience uh, and arrest skyrocketed. And you're talking all demographics now. It's not just students anymore, right? Right. Well, I'm, I'm talking mainly on campus, yeah. But but it's people of all ages. Sure. But, uh, you know, just on campus, there were riots almost daily now. Tear gas was now a daily occurrence. The South Hall was firebombed. Nobody ever found out who did that. Obstructive picketing became commonplace. So every day, you know, you're trying to get around campus. You're a student just trying to go to class. Guess what? You're not getting in. Right. Right, blocking buildings. Yeah, blocking if you're just streets. trying to be neutral, you can't even just go about your life. You have to pick a side, basically. So one specific person who saw the Dow Day riots and became radicalized because of them was Carlton Armstrong.
So Carlton Armstrong watched the melee from a balcony on Bascom Hall. He was a sometimes student. He flunked out twice, probably had plans at some point, maybe to go back if he could. Uh, but he's obviously still on campus there. In 1968, Carlton Armstrong received his draft induction card, but he was ultimately medically exempted because he was known to be a sleepwalker. Apparently, if you're a sleepwalker, you can't go to war. Because huh. they don't, don't, uh, don't walk around with any AKs. Here, here, here's a gun. <laughs> Good luck. So, That's a bad dream you just had. I actually do uh, concur with that exemption. Yeah. You know. It's a bad dream to be over there to begin with, but if you're sleepwalking, that's a nightmare for everyone involved. So he sees he sees what went on on Dow Day. He becomes radicalized. He spends his time in Madison attending protests all over the place. And he kind of does this with his younger brother, Dwight Armstrong. Uh, Dwight does not go to UW-Madison, but he kind of idolizes. Brother. Yes, he idolizes his big brother. And they pretty much start doing everything together. And they start, like like I said, going going to protests, and then they start actually planning attacks on various targets. Oh, brotherly terrorism. Isn't it sweet? And they were not very good at it, to tell you the truth. At least they're idiots. <laughs> they were They were pretty unsophisticated. Uh, they actually, they tried to torch. I mean, they were doing, this is some serious stuff. They were trying you know, to do, yes. They tried to torch the ROTC building and the Selective Service building on campus, but the fires did little damage uh, before being put out. And actually, the building they thought was the Selective Service building wasn't. It was a primate research center. They don't even know where they are. So they were firebombing monkeys, uh, none of whom were hurt, by the way. You know, we're it, not just saying right. that they didn't even do. They didn't even know what they were doing. They didn't. They didn't research what they thought this building was a selective service building. So let's go. Be, probably you know, best for everybody them, involved right? that these idiots don't know where they are. What's so, you know, not a lot of research going on. It was just basically you know fly by night terrorism is what they were doing. So, but on New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve, nineteen sixty nine, they stole a small airplane from an airport in Middleton, obviously just north of Madison there. They flew to Badger Ordnance Works, which is a, a munitions plant in, in Baraboo. I'm a little surprised they were capable of that, to be honest. Yeah, they weren't the pilots. Way. They right. weren't pilots. They, they flew the plane. They didn't really know how to land it. They did. You know, they did what they wanted to do, kind of. So they weren't complete idiots, maybe? So they wanted to, they wanted to firebomb this munitions plant in Baraboo. This is on New Year's Eve of 1969. This is where you question their idiocy. So they took a bunch of mayonnaise... They take a bunch of mayonnaise jars. I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> that right? just sounds I mean, funny right off the bat. Well, I mean, the level of idiocy no, kind of is laughable. So they empty out all these mayonnaise jars, and they fill them with an ammonia nitrate and fuel oil. It's a very serious situation. Fertilizer and fuel oil. Right. And they fly over this munitions plant in Baraboo, and they drop these homemade bombs, these Molotov cocktails, I guess, which they never lit beforehand. They apparently just thought that they would, they would explode on contact. Once they hit the ground. They didn't realize that they actually needed a fuse. <laughs> Be lit. Maybe so the, they, the fumes of the mayonnaise would do it. Because, uh, you know, mayonnaise is strong. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever they tried to do, nothing had, like, no fire started, right? So the people came to work the next day at the munitions plant, and they just found a bunch of mayonnaise jars lying around. Um, you so, said you read a quote from... The younger brother who said, what? 
He said, uh, so before Carlton threw these down, the younger brother said, aren't you going to light those? <laughs> uh, apparently Carlton didn't think he had to. The younger brother was so, a smart one. You know, we're not dealing with MacGyvers here, no. obviously. Right. And because of this, because of what they did, they became known as the New Year's gang. And because they came, they came so everything, that there was an underground paper I get well. I was going to say website, but there weren't any websites in no, 19. No, the internet didn't exist, so that. Would be so different. there was an underground paper in Madison called the Kaleidoscope, and uh, a very far left, um, you know, anti-war paper. Cool figure. And every time they he would, you know, do these things when he tried to torch the ROTC building and the and the Selective Service building, he would call into this or write into this paper, and tell him what he's doing because it, you know his whole objective was t- terror. It was fear. Right. They were terrorists. Well, like a right? serial killer does. They want, they will, maybe it's not about attention, but just they're sending a message. And it's kind of working. So people are seeing this stuff happening, right? They know the ROTC building was set on fire. The primate research building was set on fire. These Molotov cocktails were thrown on the munitions building. It wasn't done correctly. But so people now. But you never know what's going to happen. Right. You still got to be leery. So people now know that these this group of people is out there trying to cause a shit ton of damage. Especially if they don't know what they're doing, you don't know what's going to happen. You right. got to be even more scared because they're not polished. So the interesting thing is that that flyover on the munitions plant, even though nothing happened, even though all they did was throw mayonnaise jars down there <laughs> was the first air without attack. the mayonnaise that's it, insulting it was the first air attack in the u.s since pearl harbor <laughs> right that really counts that is, i wow, guess it that counts. really counts guess as the throwing f- mayonnaise jars does count as an attack we're potentially bombs but you know without being ignited they're just mayonnaise jars Still counts as an aerial attack. So now the New Year's gang is a thing now, right? They, they're they this kind of terrorist group um, running around Madison trying to firebomb places. By 1970 now, public opinion is now vastly... Remember, in 1965, public opinion was with the war. And five years later now... Because all you heard was the government's point of view at that right? point. Now the... the, the, God, the, the Well, and that and, you know, people are seeing everybody getting killed. Now, I mean, we've been Not there five right. years. You know the results. Thousands, tens of thousands of Americans of Americans are dead. And the protests have been going on for a while. And and again, we don't see a way to get out of here. So Richard Nixon gets elected during this time, basically on a campaign promise of getting out of there. His campaign was based on ending the war in Vietnam. So he gets elected. And on April 30th, he invades Cambodia, and campuses around the country explode. <laughs> so, and this is the time, four days later, four days after he invades Cambodia, Kent State happens, which four students were shot and killed by the National Guard. Happy trigger fingers, right? Two of them weren't even, two of those students killed weren't even part of a protest there. They were walking to school. They were walking to class. That was May 4th. So after Kent State, which was obviously a massive story around the country. Four college students killed by the National Guard. There's a song about it.
So there's riots in Madison for 10 days straight after Kent State. Not only in Madison, obviously, but all, all throughout the country. Campuses all throughout the country. And I'm sure not only campuses either. I mean, this was a right. massive deal. When you see, you know, protesters, college protesters getting gunned down by the National Guard. Well, the parents of these students are going to start resisting a little bit, right? No doubt. I mean, and they have com- the compassion anyway, you know, but it's their kids. So 10 days straight riots in Madison after Kent State, no class, there's lootings, there's firebombings, there's trashings, tear gas every day. It just be, it be, basically becomes what we saw two years ago in Madison every day, right? So the next semester now, as school's starting up after the summer of 1970, so Kent State was in May, end of the last school year, right? So summer goes by. As the next school year is starting up, Carlton and Dwight Armstrong returned to Madison. They went to Minneapolis for the summer. They had an uncle in Minneapolis, and they're hanging out with him for a while. They come back to Madison. Neither one are in school, but they come back to Madison. They recruit two new members to their little New Year's gang, right? Maybe some intelligence. Leo Burt and David Fine, both of whom were students, both of whom were writers for the school's newspaper, a student newspaper, called the Daily Cardinal. Yeah, they were actually students at the school at the time. Right. Radical newspaper. I don't know. It's still it's still the Daily Cardinal. I don't know if I would call it radical anymore. I don't know. But at this time, obviously, with, yeah, with the, change a lot the, 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 the tumultuous time, um, you, can, you can pretty much call the Daily Cardinal a radical paper. Both of these writers, Leo Burton, David Fine, were radicalized by writing. Uh, at the paper, they're actually the first American paper to ever send a reporter to Cuba. So, you know, we can see the slant that they were writing with at the time. Now, they joined the Armstrong brothers, and all, you know, all four of these guys now go looking for trouble. Because, you know, Carlton Armstrong had a lot of fun torturing ROTC buildings and, uh, and throwing manis out of airplanes. So they're looking, <laughs> they're looking for more things to do. So they turn their attention to the Army Math Research Center inside Sterling Hall. So the AMRC, as it was known, the Army Math Research Center. Significant for what reason? Well, along with the ROTC building and the Selective Service building, they were the three buildings that the students looked at as being um, symbolic of the university's complicity in American foreign policy, and they wanted it off campus. They were sponsored by the Pentagon. They were federal labs, basically. It wasn't certain what was happening there. We don't know for a fact everything that was going on there, but it's believed that it they were in the AMRC. Military research. They were developing infrared detection and tracking technology. Now, what do you use that for? Obviously, you're trying to zero in on targets under... Finding ET, I think. I never thought of that. Back but that, then, that, actually. Actually, that's uh, pretty good. Actually, it's we're not that far to, off, Pace. do some more research here. <laughs> the What we believe the reason was for... That's what the students believed. We're smarter than that. Is It was tracking technology to zero in on targets under heavy foliage in a jungle. So they're working on developments of weapons of war. What the students believed. Right. Is that true or not? I don't know that we even know today. But that was... So they look at the AMRC the as foundation of their argument as being obviously again the university's complicity in war. It had a target on it. So the four men, Armstrong, Leo Burt, David Fine, and Dwight Armstrong, wound up stealing a white Econoline van 
and they drove out to Devil's Lake State Park, right? Great place to go. Who hasn't been there? Who wouldn't love to go there? They drive that out to Devil's Lake State Park, but what they do is they build a bomb inside of it. And they take four big barrels and fill them each with 500 pounds of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil. Not mayonnaise. Not mayonnaise. The same thing they put in the mayonnaise jars, just way bigger. A lot more going on. And they know now that they might have to light it. And they put a dynamite fuse in them. That'll do it. Right. So they devised this grand plan. So early in the morning of August 24th, 1970, Carlton maneuvers the van into the loading dock of Sterling Hall. Sterling Hall is where the AMRC was. Housed on the multiple upper floors of Sterling Hall. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's a big building, right? But it was only a, a, a few floors that the AMRC was utilizing. So it wasn't the whole building. So they move this van into the loading dock of Sterling Hall. And when they get to the site, Carlton and Leo exit the van lit the fuse, and got into another car that they basically used as a getaway car and got the hell out of there. So David, at the time, was dropped off at a phone booth before they lit the fuses. So David's in a phone booth. Is he Superman? He wasn't changing clothes. Okay. He was making a phone call. Just wanted to make sure. To the Madison Police Department. That said the following. Okay, pigs. Now listen and listen good. There's a bomb in the Army Math Research Center set to go off in five minutes. Clear the building, get everyone out, warn the hospital. This is no bullshit, man. And the call ended. Sounds pretty serious. Two minutes later, the bomb goes off. It had the impact of a small nuclear bomb. 26 university buildings are damaged, among countless others. That's just 26 university buildings. There were churches, banks, you name it. People blocks away heard it. Four people were severely injured, and one, 33-year-old postdoctoral researcher Robert Fosnacht, who was inside of the building. 33, you said? Yeah. 33, was killed. Now, they found parts of that van on tops of eight-story buildings, 10 blocks away. Yeah. I think this was actually heard for miles. It was heard for over 10 miles outside of campus. Right. Now, Robert Fosnacht was from South Bend, Indiana. He received his bachelor's degree from Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo College and came to UW on a fellowship in 1958. He met his future wife, Stephanie, in the physics department there. He was working in a lab in the basement of the building. So the, AM, ASM, the AMRC is several floors above. You know, he had nothing to do with the AMRC. He's in his physics lab in the basement. And he was there so late because he was pulling an all-nighter because he was going to go on vacation with his family before school started. Him and one other guy, Bill Evans, were there doing postdoctoral research late in the afternoon, late into the evening. So there was only a few people there, but the New Year's Club didn't know about that. They were parents of a three-year-old son and two one-year-old twin daughters at the time. He's in the basement conducting experiments and you know one of the reasons that the new year's gang if you want to give them any any if you want to let them off the hook or something i guess is that they did it this late at night because they figured nobody would be hoping yeah right but they didn't know that robert fosnacht and a a couple of other people or one other person were in the vicinity 
were in the building at the time. Right. So the AMRC itself was virtually untouched. You know, add that to the pattern of, of, of you know, the New Year's gang, right? They're, they're bombing the wrong places. <laughs> Their target was the AMRC. The AMRC was five floors above where they were going. Right. They knew the right building this time, at least. A couple of doors were busted off, but that's about it. All of the work and all of the research and all of the stuff that was in the AMRC was untouched. So, again, their objective was not met, but they killed a guy while they were doing it. And four others, three in Sterling Hall and one across the street at University Hospital, were injured. So there was multiple casualties. Well, not casualties, but people involved, innocent strangers that were injured or killed. So they find out that they killed somebody. They hear it in their car or whatever it would be. They find out that somebody's dead, and they know that they messed up big time. So they take off, right? What else would somebody like that do? Are they going to turn themselves in? No, they take off, and they go to Canada. They wouldn't be capable of doing this if they were going to turn themselves in. They go to Canada, and they go in hiding. They're on the run for years, right? Carlton Armstrong is finally caught in Toronto in the, sp- in the spring of 1972, so it's just two years later. He fought extradition. Of course he would, right? Fought extradition, but it was unsuccessful and, uh, unsuccessful and was returned back to Madison in 1973. Wound up pleading guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to 23 years in prison, which sounds good, right? He's sentenced to 23 years in prison for what he did. Because someone died. The bombing is bad enough, the point they're trying to make, but A, it wasn't directed at the right spot, and they didn't realize that they were going to kill someone. But now that's murder. Now, there's a documentary about this. It's I highly recommend it. It's called The War at Home. I think it's part of a PBS documentary called, well, it's part of the American Experience, which is obviously an, an kind of an anthology, uh, a long-running documentary show on on PBS. And most of my research was on PBS-related websites. So. so the documentary, The War at Home, Carlton Armstrong is interviewed, and he talks about the regret that he felt when they found out that Fosnacht was in the building. And he says, quote, I just felt that the bombing was very stupid at the time. I felt morally a sense of shame for taking someone's life. I didn't think it was justified, unquote. He did many interviews after that in which he said the opposite. Basically said that Fosnacht was, uh, you know, part of the fog of war, part of the gig, right? What they were doing was justified. So, you know, he came down on both sides of the aisle on this. Which means there's not a lot of remorse. So again, he gets sentenced to 23 years in prison, and he gets paroled in 1980. He served seven years after killing somebody. Isn't that about what you get for federal property? And that's about what you get for robbing a convenience store. So he gets seven years. He comes back to Madison, and this dude opens up a juice stand on State Street, <laughs> calls it Loose Juice, right? And he ran that thing for 30 freaking years in the same city. In the city or on State Street. Right? He opened up a sandwich shop called Radical Rye, which won like a whole bunch of awards in Madison for like best of Madison sandwiches and best. I mean, this is embarrassing. So the name of the store is actually is based Radical Rye. So he's even addressing what he did and he had who a co- he is. He had a coffee. I don't have it in front of me, but he had a coffee that was named after Che Guevara. 
I mean, this is. It's. I mean, I mean, he's not running away from what he did. Well, no, he's a celebrity there. He, they're actually. He's a celebrity. They're embracing. Of him. course. That's ridiculous. Well, and he's buddies with Paul Soglin. You know they. No, well, right, right, and right. You know, so all the all Soglin's the Soglin's got a lot of pull at that point. Well, even originally, but now he's gone up the food chain on top of it. So this is, you know, he he bombs a building creates massive panic, massive damage, kills a person, serves seven years in prison, and returns to the scene of the crime, basically, um, almost a hero. But again, you know, this is the fine line between murder and activism. Mur- is murder not murder? Now, he was later arrested in Chicago. This is recently, like with I think it was in the last 10 years or something. He's r- arrested in Chicago for suspicion of drug trafficking, when he was pulled over with over $800,000 of cash in the vehicle he was driving. So, you know, again, this is criminal activity. This is a criminal mind. And you mentioned here. Paul Soglin. At this point, he's already an alderman. And he ends up be- becoming well, he mayor. Was, he, yeah, I mean, he ran that. By, by 73, he's mayor. Right, Armstrong ran that for 30 years. He was running that in the 90s. Right. He, I mean, up till recent years. So just being friends with another student protester... Is all it took. Well, he helped him when he got caught. Right. Soglin was helping him with his with his court shit when he get, when he was extradited back here. Which so, almost it defeats the purpose that they were trying to pull in the first place. You know, I mean, who are you? You're, you're contradicting yourselves. Now, Dwight Armstrong, Carlton's brother, who was 19 at the time of the bombing, he was found in Canada as well. He was found in Toronto in 1977. He gets returned to Madison. Pleads guilty to third-degree murder. Sentenced to seven years in prison. Released after three. Kills a guy three years in prison. He drove a cab for several years in Madison. Again, they don't even leave. They're right in Madison. Right. He drives a cab in Madison. You think you'd up, uproot yourself and go somewhere yeah. else because you don't want this history to come back to you. But he basically lives a life in and out of the prison system. He's convicted multiple times on drug charges. He goes to prison several times. Again, criminal minds, criminal behavior here, not activism, criminal. Right. He wound up passing away of cancer in 2010, 59 years old. David Fine, who was 18 at the time of the bombing, the youngest one, he was found in California in 1976, returned back to Madison. Same plea as Dwight, right? So he's sentenced, sentenced to seven years, winds up serving three, gets out, kills a guy, three years. Went to law school in Oregon, but he's he's denied admittance to the bar in Oregon because of his involvement in the bombing. This is what their denial says. Quote, he has not shown himself to be a credible person and did not establish that he now has the good moral character required to practice law. We base our decision on the applicant's present statements about his past acts. We recognize that persons can and do reform. However, in this case... The applicant's deceitful, self-serving conduct persisted at the time of the hearing, unquote. He's conniving, still taking no responsibility for it. Criminal mind. These are sociopaths, right? He works for many years. I think he's still working. He's still working in Oregon for a law firm. He's not a lawyer. I think he's a paralegal or... uh, you know, somebody like that. But he's actually trying to defend the law. And as we've mentioned in other podcasts, 
you can be a sociopath and not have been diagnosed. I mean, there's a lot of these people walking around and just, it doesn't mean they're not constructive citizens or whatever, but the fact that there's no remorse, that that's a perfect sign of sociopathic activity. Leo Burt, 22 at the time, is still at large. Never been seen again. Right, A few days after the bombing, the police were closing in on him in Canada, where he was with David Fine at the time, but they escaped out of an apartment window, and the police found inside, they found his wallet and a fake ID, bunch of fake IDs, an alias that he was using of Eugene Donald Fieldston, but he's never been caught. He's never been seen again. He was featured on America's Most Wanted as the ghost of Wisconsin. Can't find this guy. There was a line of thought in the 1990s that Leo Burt was the Unabomber. And if you look at, the interesting thing is if you look at Leo Burt, you look at a photo of Leo Burt and the the drawing, the famous drawing of the Unabomber, you know, he's wearing the glasses with the right, and stuff. that everybody's seen. It looks like Leo Burt. Really? <laughs> I mean, it looks a lot like Leo Burt. Now... It's, it's got to be coincidence. Right, it we is. We don't it's know not. for sure that it's not, well. Well, Kaczynski is the I Unabomber. guess, yeah, we know that. So he, he wasn't the Unabomber, but that's one of the reasons why, you know, especially when that artist rendering came out of the Unabomber, right. Leo Burt was thought of because he looked like him, and obviously he's on the run for, for, for a bombing. He's still at large, too. Still at large. To this day. He'd be 74 years old today. He has the distinction of being the longest ever FBI fugitive. Way to go, you made it. The funny thing is, if he if he would have known what the others got, he probably would have just turned himself in. Right. Right? Turn yourself in. Don't but, go on the run. Turn yourself in. Well, because you got to be running scared you, if you're you, that guy. You get a couple of, couple of years probation, and you're right back, you right. know, living the life you want to live. But, you're yeah, you got to be not living your best life if you're afraid that you're always going to be caught, because they know the name. So now, on campus, after this happened, the radicals kind of reevaluated what they had done. William Sewell, who was a target of the radicals, was anti-war. Robert Fosnott, who was killed, was anti-war. They believed what they did. They were kind of eating their own, right? They're killing each other. So violence greatly subdued. Professors reported that students were more attentive to their work that semester. Attendance in class was back to pre-Dow riot levels. GPA was up. So obviously students were kind of um, getting back to normal life after this happened. They figured that the violence wasn't worth it when they're seeing their own die. The Daily Cardinal, even the Daily Cardinal referred to the following year as, quote, the year of grave calm, unquote. Now, why would that be grave calm? Why would calm be bad? Well, they think it's bad because they basically endorsed the bombing. Remember David Fine and Leo Burt worked for that paper and when they were implicated of it in it the daily cardinal wrote quote the amrc was a physical and symbolic installation whose sole purpose was to serve the strong arm of american economic interests across the globe this military arm of our government has been the most violent instrument in the history of the world and has stolen from murdered and destroyed the lives of people in countries from cuba to vietnam as well as those at the bottom of the social ladder within its own turf in order for its physical and symbolic destruction to have any meaning beyond the specific point in time the movement from which the bombing sprang must be expanded 
Okay, they're calling for more of these. We are with Leo and David now because they are people we care for very deeply and we know very well. The Daily Cardinal lost 75% of their advertising money the next day. Well, the, the logic behind it, I mean, nothing nothing that they wanted. Well, it, it turns out there's not even a re, They didn't want a result. Uh, well, the result is that they wanted the destruction of the American machine. That's right. But that hasn't happened because as a result of this bombing, they, they just, like you said. It's uh, symbolic of it. It's symbolic of the... the the larger picture of what they're looking for, which those people are still looking for. Right, but the, but they should have already learned that it hasn't had any impact since since the first time they did anything. All the people did was get scared. They didn't the the the, the fear that they're sending is going in the opposite direction. So these guys are just sociopaths. They they think the result, or they they think that the answer is violence. But the the minds of those people can convince themselves that that it is working, but it's not obviously. Because their lives have ended up fruitless, you know, and the, and the one guy is still at large. So, I mean, nothing nothing has resulted because of it. So the radicals were no longer the heroes. Right. Right. People have, I don't want to say turn their back on them, but they're they're done with those tactics. Now, they went too far in that direction. It didn't it didn't end completely. Obviously, there's still isolated incidents incidents, of course. You know, but for the most part, anti-war violence was a thing of the past. You still had, you know, the what are known as, quote, the crazies, unquote, real term, um, that were still out there trying to rattle the stuff up and still trying to, to, to call for bombings and call for non-peaceful tactics. But they were pretty much shut down and they, they didn't, um, it didn't spread anymore throughout campuses. Now, the Nixon, this got obviously national appeal, national attention, as the Dow riots did. So much so that the Nixon White House in 1971, in their crime bill, put a provision authorizing U.S. attorneys to seek the death penalty for fatal bombings and called it the Armstrong Act. Okay, now they put a provision in their crime bill called the Armstrong Act to seek the death penalty for fatal bombings, which what ha- which is what happened. And Armstrong himself got seven years. Dwight Armstrong got three years. David Fine got three years and went on to live normal lives. And petty crimes often. That's the same kind of sentencing for petty crimes. And they killed a guy after blowing up a building. So radicals were seeing that violence was not, as Mickey was saying, the effective tool they thought it was, if not only just in in really the case of public opinion, because people were turning on them. Oh, they're getting scared. So, you know, you also have more stories coming to light at the time of the way vets were being treated when they returned home. You know, it's another reason that people were kind of turning on the radicals. You, they were not treated well when they came back here. They right. were called baby killers. Treated you know, we've all, horribly. Heard, we've all heard those stories. Yeah. You know, so the radicals were, were out of bounds here. This is kind of how the narrative is kind of changing now because of the bombing, because, in, you know, an anti-war member was was murdered by radicals. And these soldiers, as I, we originally alluded to, they weren't necessarily, they were in the military and they were drafted or, or they even voluntary. They didn't necessarily want to go over there. They were sacrificing their lives for our freedom, and now they're being punished and and just scrutinized as a result i mean 
it, it just went too far in the right. other direction. And, and in the beginning, it was a voluntary army, but obviously they, they did institute the draft. And they were being 35, I think it was 35,000 men a month were being drafted over into Vietnam. And that, just because they were in the military doesn't necessarily mean they agreed to go over. They wanted to go over there. They had to. But now they come back after risking their lives and, and limbs and, and, every, and, their, and their mental stability, and now they're being treated like criminals by these protesters. So now after, after Kent State and after Madison, uh, basically the Senate repealed the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which was basically the funding Johnson and now Nixon at the time, the funding that they had for uh, the war escalation. They had, they, they had money pulled from them by the Senate to continue the war. In December 1970, the Senate banned the presence of American ground troops in Laos and Cambodia. So it didn't, it, it didn't allow the White House to expand the war anymore. And in early 1971, both houses of Congress began serious debate of the proposed 26th Amendment, which would enfranchise 18-year-olds. So that's when the federal voting age dropped from 21 to 18. So the protest did have profound effect. These years of protests, not only because of, obviously, but it had an impact on it. A lot of other things were going sure. on also. Oh, we, we, weren't, we were losing the war, as, you know, as a big thing. It's a big reason why. Right, there was no winners of that war, but essentially we were the ultimate losers. But because of, you know, a, partly because of a lot of things that were going on, Congress started pulling the funding from the war, and it gave um, voting rights nationally to 18-year-olds. As a final result, in 1973, there was a ceasefire agreement reached in Paris. The last American combat troops left Vietnam. But as Scott mentioned earlier, roughly 58,000 people had died in the course of the war. And what was our objective? To stop the spread of communism, right? What happened? Still exists. They unified as a communist country. Right. With nothing, nothing was accomplished in that war. And that's why, you know, here we are 50 years after the end of it, over 50 years. It still gets debated. You know, was it, you know, people call it an unjust war. I don't know if it was an unjust war war well going into it they had they had their reasons sure i mean you you could call it a bad foreign policy decision it's it was you know you can say it was a bad idea because hindsight is 2020 you know does that i don't know if it was an illegal war if it was an unjust war i don't i'm not versed enough in that stuff to say that it doesn't seem to me on the surface that it would be um fair to call it an unjust war but it's it's a a good idea it's a regret but, but it's easy to say it after the fact Going in, they had their reasons. Sure. Whether they were legit or not. But essentially, as we've been saying, this bombing was kind of all for nothing. As we said, maybe like the war itself. So there's a lot of parallels going on. So now after the bombing, the Board of Regents established the Robert Fosnock Memorial Fellowship. His widow, Stephanie, used it to to pursue a Ph.D. at Madison. They also pledged free tuition for their children. Remember, he had a three-year-old son and two one-year-old twin daughters at the time. Both daughters, Heidi and Karen, did enroll and utilize that free tuition at UW-Madison. His son, Chris, went on to become a physics professor at UC Davis, University of California at Davis. Now, the, the, in, in 2007, Fosnock was memorialized with a plaque that's placed outside of Sterling Hall. 
and both Heidi and Karen attended that ceremony. Now, in the 50-plus years since, since this has happened, the family has kind of shied away from publicity. They haven't done a lot of interviews about it. A lot of the people involved had that same reaction. Right. They didn't the, necessarily want to talk about the it people again. who were there in the building, especially, and people who, who felt the impact of the blast. Right? A lot like the people in the war. They didn't want to talk sure. about it afterwards. Now, in, in 2011, CBS News did run a story on Carl Armstrong, and Stephanie Fosnacht, Robert's wife, declined to be interviewed, but she did give a statement that referenced Armstrong, and it says, quote, I would like him to know that I harbor no ill will toward him, and I never did, unquote. That blows me away. Yeah. And I never did. You know, again, there's this line here between murder and and murder by way of activism that somehow makes it okay, right? And who, I mean, who am I to who am I to, to disagree with the widow of the man, right? I can't, I'm not going to say that she's wrong, but it it just it comes off as very bizarre to me. But she's mentally healthy because to carry that anger she's, does you no well, good. She's a much better man than I am, right. or a person that I am, right. I should say. She is a, yeah, yeah. she doesn't have to be I a mean, man to be I better. Don't, I don't. But I, I, mentally healthy way to look at it, but on the other hand, to, to never have any ill will towards the guy who killed you. I mean, she knows he didn't do it on purpose, but still, that was just a ridiculous thing to do. The, the bombing, it didn't do any good. I mean, you were blowing up. They were going to, continue the research somewhere else the problem is people get so caught up in their thoughts and their and their passions and their beliefs that they they don't think logically anymore and they're and it just takes over their minds and then you do something crazy like this and you blow up a building and kill an innocent man who had nothing to do with any of it you know and, and again when when stuff like this happens and we look at you know quote the war at home right and we talk about a bombing that kills an innocent man and we again lose sight of the people that went over there and the people that were fighting this war. Who didn't necessarily want to be there. They were just doing their due diligence to defend their country. You know, what's the legacy of the Vietnam War? What did we learn from this? Not long after that, we go to, we have the Persian Gulf War. Iran, yeah. And we wind up, uh, you know, fighting in, in the Middle East for 20 plus years. Without nearly as many casualties, but for what reason? So, you know, you look at the lessons of this, what the, the legacy of the Vietnam War, the legacy of the bombing, especially when you look at not long after this. This happened in 1970. They bombed Sterling Hall using a van filled with fertilizer and fuel oil. And 24 years later, somebody takes a moving truck and fills it with barrels of fertilizer and fuel oil and puts it in front of a government building in Oklahoma City and did way more damage. You cannot tell me that they were not influenced by this. You can't tell me that they did not research this. You can't tell me that Timothy McVeigh didn't learn anything from Carl Armstrong. Right. So there is a massive lasting effect to this stuff. They had an impact. Even a generation later, somebody was copycatting this. And maybe even the impact that these potential sociopaths wanted but the story they were trying to tell this is not the result they wanted but it's a sad statement on where the human mind can take you 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 can't know what people that are capable of these actions what their 
what the result they are shooting for really is. I mean, most people that just wanted to stop aren't capable of these actions. So it it's it's just such a gray area to even try to understand the mind of someone who's capable of this. But ultimately, it just comes down to mankind not being able to agree with each other. And that's... But violence does not stop violence. No, violence breeds violence. And, I, you know, obviously when we see this, you know, what happened at Sterling Hall and then, then a generation later, somebody uses this basically the same technique to cause way more damage to kill a lot later. more people. So, you know, violence breeds violence. So that is, in my opinion, the legacy of violent protesting. And we're not learning from it. What did, I mean, we just went through this two years ago. It doesn't matter what what line you are um, bartering with, what line you're, you're agreeing with here. We need to find a common ground. I keep going back to the legacy of the Vietnam War, in my opinion, is not Carl Armstrong. Unfortunately for a lot of people, it seems to be. Timothy McVeigh, it seemed to be. The legacy of the Vietnam War means to, you know, needs to be the people that went over there. And not only the people that went over there, but the people whose lives were blown up figuratively right. by this war. Well, and these people that are doing these destructive acts, they're, they're, they're getting more credit than they deserve. It's violence feeding violence, and we need to just, we need to learn. And it just seems like history repeats itself. We need to learn and realize that... We need to find a common ground and, and, and start communicating better because just trying to kill each other is not working and we're going to end up destroying ourselves altogether. And if we don't trust each other, that's that's where anger and, and regression and aggression and violence and bitterness all stems from. So we need to find a way to start looking at each other's points of view and fixing ourselves and stop judging everybody else. Um, Look at the man in the mirror, and that's the only person you have any right to fix, so we just need to start doing that and stop condemning and criticizing everyone else. Just find a common ground, because we're all the same. Amen, brother. <laughs>